would invite you to get your Bibles and turn now to the book of Acts and chapter 13. But if you've been with us, you'll note that our text is not the next text that we typically would go to. And there's a reason for that, because the text that we're skipping is Paul's first sermon. And um, the first sermon ultimately ends up with this whole kind of emphasis on the resurrection. And it just seems strange to me to be preaching on the resurrection and then two weeks later to say, hmm, what am I going to do as far as preaching on the resurrection for Easter? So we're, we're letting it sit and simmer for a bit. It's a great text, by the way, for anyone who's an unbeliever because it walks through just the connection of God's redemptive plan. And um, so let me just remind you uh, to, be, uh, to be praying about that and uh, just explaining to you what's going on there. So Acts chapter 13, we're going to pick it up at verse 44. Acts 13, verse 44 through 14.7. Let's stand together. Let's uh, read God's word. Bill is going to come and he's going to uh, lead us in reading the scripture this morning. And uh, then we'll pray and jump into it. Okay, let's begin the reading of God's word. Starting with Acts 13, verse 44. The next Sabbath, almost the whole city gathered to hear the word of the Lord. But when the Jews saw the crowds, they were filled with jealousy and began to contradict what was spoken by Paul reviling him. And Paul and Barnabas spoke out boldly, saying, It was necessary that the word of God be spoken first to you, since you thrust it aside and judged yourselves unworthy of eternal life. Behold, we are turning to the Gentiles. For so the Lord has commanded us, saying, I have made you a light for the Gentiles, that you may bring salvation to the ends of the earth. And when the Gentiles heard this, they began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord. And as many as were appointed to eternal life believed. And the word of the Lord was spreading throughout the whole region. But the Jews incited the devout women of high standing and the leading men of the city, stirred up persecution against Paul and Barnabas, and drove them out of the district. But they shook off the dust from their feet against them and went to Iconium. And the disciples were filled with joy and with the Holy Spirit. Now at Iconium they entered together into the Jewish synagogue and spoke in such a way that a great number of both Jews and Greeks believed. But the unbelieving Jews stirred up the Gentiles and poisoned their minds against the brothers. So they remained for a long time, speaking boldly for the Lord, who bore witness to the word of his grace, granting signs and wonders to be done by their hands. But the people of the city were divided. Some sided with the Jews, and some the apostles. When an attempt was made by both Gentiles and Jews with the rulers to mistreat them and to stone them, they learned of it and fled to Leicester and Derby, the cities of Lycaonia, and to the surrounding country. And there they continued to preach the gospel. Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you for, in particular, this passage. Because, Lord, we know that 
Through it, you want to teach us, you want to mold us to be more and more like your son, Jesus Christ. And so, Lord, we ask for you to do that. What we know not, Lord, would you teach us? What we are not, would you make us? Or what we have not, would you give us? And allow me as your messenger, Lord, to be your faithful mouthpiece so that your people can be built up in the faith and that those that don't know you, Lord, can come and receive salvation, Lord, from you. We ask this now in your precious holy name. Amen. Thank you. You may be seated. Well, about 15 years ago or so, um, there was a buzzword that came up in Christianity. It was an expression that challenged us to think about our lives, not just as Christians, but as those who have the light of the gospel and are to live out that light in such a way that it brings glory to God, but to live out that light in a hostile world. And that that phrase, I'm sure you know it very well, is, is the idea of being missional or missional living. And the basic idea of that is that God calls all of us to be missionaries in one sense. Wherever we go, whatever we're doing, whether it's mundane stuff or serious stuff, God calls us to live with a mindset and a view of life such that we see ourselves as being placed in those circumstances from a missional perspective. So you're not just going to Starbucks to have coffee and do some work on your laptop. You're there doing your work with a missionary mindset. And you're always ready to, to have a conversation with, the, with someone that might be around. Now, you might have, I want to say, legitimate things you're working on, but you realize that God's put you there for a reason. Or maybe uh, you're at the gym and you're, you're working on your biceps, but you're also very aware that God has placed you there both to live in front of others, but also to shine the light of the gospel in that context. Now, that doesn't mean somehow that you're kind of, you know, running around like, hey, I'm a Christian, you need to talk to me. It just means you're, you're living in that context, but you're mindful and you're aware and you're, you're engaging people. Or if you're standing at the line, a long line at the post office like I was the other day with a large box that you need to send, you're not just angry with the long line and you're not you know, upset with the people around you, you're just saying, okay, Lord, this is my situation, and we're, I'm going to you know, get a conversation going. We'll just see if the Lord has anything in it. Or maybe it means that when you're at the hospital, that you're speaking thankfully and kindly to the security and the receptionist and the nurse and the pharmacist, and of course, the doctor, because they're going to be working on you. But it just means that you're, you're mindful that God has placed you in that context and so you're thinking missionally, not selfishly, and you realize because you're living missionally that the world doesn't revolve around you. But in fact, God is orchestrating the world around you in such a way that you can be a light for the gospel. You see, God is the sovereign ruler of this world, and I think we know that very well. And he sends us out to live our lives, our mundane lives, in mundane places. And in those mundane places, he calls us to be ready to live those lives and to open our mouths in such a way that we are presenting the light of the gospel. So when we pray... We pray that God will open doors, open conversations, create scenarios where maybe in the mundane world I can have a conversation or I can testify. Or when we go out and we're simply living our lives, we're thinking, yes, we've got things we need to do. We've got to go to Costco. We've got to you know, go to Target, the typical things of life. 
And yet in the midst of that, we're, we're praying and we're living with such an awareness that, you know what, there may be a conversation to be had here. Or maybe I'm just responding in a Christ-like way that's going to have a, an impact uh, on this person in some way, shape, or form. We leave that with the Lord. But when we speak, we're to speak in such a way that adorns the gospel. In Colossians chapter 1, verse 10, the Apostle Paul reminds us to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord. In other words, if we're Christians, our walk should reflect that. And so this is all what is involved when it comes to missional living. It means that we're to take time to kindly engage with people. In other words, talking with them, our neighbors, the person in the line, the optometrist, which is kind of, you know, when they're doing that glycoma test, you know, let me tell you about Jesus, all right? That may not necessarily go over well, but I'm saying you're open, you're friendly, you're getting to know them, you're engaging with people, you're not just kind of like isolating. And I think sometimes in our Christian culture, in our Christian world, and maybe in our churches, we've been so bubble-oriented that we're even afraid to actually engage people around us. So your hairstylist, your barber, your Uber or Lyft driver, that person that God providentially puts next to you on the plane. These are all part of the the world that God calls us to live in this way. So missional, missional living is God's strategy for each of us today. And we're called to keep working on our witness as we pursue this missional living. Now, as we come to our text today, what we find is the Apostle Paul, Barnabas, and John Mark serving as a team together as they enter two cities on this first missionary journey. And the cities are Pisidian Antioch, not the same Antioch that we looked at before. This is another Antioch, and there are a lot of Antiochs around, by the way, because they were named after particular people, right? And secondly, Iconium. And what we're going to find then in verses 13 Uh, Chapter 13, verses 44 through 52, again, that's the city of Pisidian Antioch and the surrounding region. And then Iconium would be chapters 14, 1 through 7, and the surrounding region. And as they enter these cities, uh, as, as the Lord's missionaries testifying of the good news of the gospel, what we find is that the apostles' fruitful ministry in the face of escalating opposition is fueled by theological conviction. And so in turn for us, as we look at this text, God is wanting us to understand that our gospel witness in a hostile world must be driven by a deep-rooted theological conviction. Theology matters, friends. And theology will drive us. So the apostles were motivated, were driven, were fueled as they went out to do what God has called them to, not just out of obedience, that's important, but there was something behind that. And it was a theological conviction. We're going to work our way to that. Let's first of all think about now uh, the apostles' calling. I'm approaching this passage, by the way, not so much sequentially, but thematically, because the things are repeating here in this context. These are going to be true in both of their engagements with the people in these cities. What we first see here is the apostles going about fulfilling their calling to be witnesses. This is what Jesus said they were to do. You are to be my witnesses. And now they're going out, in particular, in the end of the earth territory, the Gentile territory. And what we find here is they follow the same pattern or strategy that we saw the last time, and that is they would go into a major city, 
and ultimately they would go into a synagogue, and in the synagogue they would open up the word of God and they'd be able to testify. And what we find here, first of all, throughout these two, these two sections, is a faithful gospel witness, a faithful gospel witness. At the end of Paul's sermon, if you look back a few verses, people are amazed at what he was saying. And they actually say, would you please come back and speak again on the next Sabbath? So there's a, there's a week that's going on here before we get into our text where something is happening. Isn't that says something about what Paul was doing and the effect of his explanation of the gospel that we skip, that we'll come to on Easter. And they're saying, will you come back? We want you to come back. Please come back. And notice now what it says in verse 44. The next Sabbath, almost the whole city gathered to hear the word of the Lord. That's remarkable, isn't it? This is not a Jewish city. This is a Gentile city in which there are some Jews that are living. Now, this might be a little bit of hyperbole. The point here is that it wasn't just Jews. It's probably three different categories of people. The ethnic Jews, right, Jews who are Jews by birth, and the, the proselyte Jews, those are, those are those who are Gentile but are practicing Jews. And, of course, we have pagan Gentiles. But from that group, we're told here, there's a whole bunch of people that are coming to hear Paul. What's, what's going on here? Just imagine if Paul showed up in Oakland at a particular church. And he began to, to speak on the Old Testament scriptures. And people are like, wow, this is incredible. We want to hear this again. But the news gets out. And over a week now, it's not just Oakland or that church that hears about Paul. It's spread all over the East Bay. I mean, there's a huge drawing of people as a result of their ministry. So, friends, it's quite a remarkable response. There is eagerness to hear the word of the Lord. Now notice, as we go through this text, how many different ways the word of the Lord or the, the word is spoken. Look at verse 46. Paul and Barnabas spoke boldly here. They do so in defense of their commission as witnesses for Jesus to the end of the earth. Verse 49 and the word of the Lord was spreading throughout the whole region. This is a summary statement of what was happening there as they were preaching, as they were declaring. Not only the people in the city, but the whole region around Pisidia and Antioch were, were hearing the word of God, and it spread out into that whole region. Friends, this is powerful stuff. There's a faithful gospel witness that's going on. Then in verse 1, at Iconium, they entered together into the Jewish synagogue, and spoke in such a way that a great number of both Jews and Greeks believed. And again, here they come, having been run out of town in Pisidian Antioch. They come to Iconium, and the first thing they do is they go to the synagogue, and they proclaim the word of the Lord. And we're told a number of Jews and Greeks believed. Verse 3, they remained for a long time speaking boldly for the Lord who bore witness to the word of grace. So not only did this missionary team preach in the Jewish synagogue, but in the face of opposition, they remained for a long time. If you remember from last time, laying a foundation of theology and truth as, as long as they could. And so... We're thinking, you know, they're laying this theological foundation because a church is being established in this territory. 
And not only were they being faithful to preach the word of the Lord, notice also that their preaching is authenticated by the signs and wonders that take place. And how does the whole passage end? And there they continued to preach the gospel. Right? Go and be my witnesses. Be my witnesses. What does a witness do? Well, the strategy, as we saw, is to go in, in particular the synagogue, open up the scriptures, the Old Testament scriptures, and point to the fact that Christ is the fulfillment of those scriptures. So Paul and Barnabas and John Mark faithfully preach Christ from the scriptures in a hostile context, and what happens? Their gospel witness bears fruit. Here's a fruitful gospel impact now. The gospel witness results in belief. First of all, we find that in Pisidian Antioch, we're on the second point, letter B. We're in Pisidian Antioch with a growing hunger to hear the word of the Lord. And it continues with the Gentiles rejoicing and glorifying the Lord. And we're told here that it results in those who were appointed to eternal life believing. And we're told that the disciples were filled with joy and with the Holy Spirit. Again, the Holy Spirit coming, and these people are genuine believers. So there's belief now that happens. And then in Iconium, we find the same thing. We're told there that they speak in such a way that a great number of both Jews and Greeks believe. We might say, rightly, that Paul and Barnabas and John Mark made a very successful ministry team. There was definitely genuine fruit, but there was also gospel rejection. Not all who hear the gospel will receive the gospel. In fact, they don't just ignore it, but they will actually oppose it. Now, friends, it's important that we're not tempted to think uh, of really kind of, I'll call it a myth, that says basically this. Well, in Paul's day, it was so much easier to preach the gospel because people were just more simple-minded or religiously superstitious in those days that they embraced this thing, this gospel thing. But today, things are different because people are far more sophisticated. They're far more educated And as a result, they're they're much more difficult to reach. And friends, it's it's a little condescending, and it's certainly arrogant to make a statement like that, but I've heard that before plenty of times. And friends, it ignores the presence of the simple-mindedness and the superstition that is present in our world today. We're so sophisticated today that our supposed experts cannot even define what it means to be a woman. But these are sophisticated people. But you see, there's this arrogance of we're the ones who have the knowledge. And back then, they were just kind of like, you know, bumbling idiots. They would follow anything. Friends, that's a myth. The gospel is just as powerful and penetrating as it ever has been. And when Paul and others go into cities, there are places that are just like the world in which we live. And the gospel they're bringing is penetrating a hostile context, and God is at work even in that hostile context. So we must throw out this myth that somehow today it's different. 
What's well, different? It's a different time and different circumstances, but the gospel is just as effective and just as powerful. And the people that we're sharing the gospel with are in desperate need of that gospel. And so we need to remind ourselves of man's ongoing true condition, that he is desperate and in need of a savior. And we need to remind ourselves of the power of the proclaimed or spoken word. It confronts the most severely sophisticated and blind heart and exposes it for what it really is. Secondly, by means of application, it's worth noting here how Luke shows us the sovereignty of God in salvation when he says, those who were appointed to eternal life believe. That's verse 48. Paul and Barnabas and John Mark went about sowing the seed of the gospel, but it's God who was already at work preparing the hearts of those who would believe. In Pisidian Antioch, in Iconium, both Jews and Greeks. See, the apostles were not called to convert people, were they? They're called to be witnesses. And God is the one then who is at work in the hearts of people, preparing the soil of that heart. And certainly the apostles went out and they used persuasion, but they didn't use manipulation. They didn't use coercion. Only bold proclamation explaining and arguing from the scriptures and then leaving the seed there. And God then would, with that softened heart, allow that seed to be germinated. Now, friends, this is all part of the apostles' calling. We are called to be gospel witnesses. This is the whole idea of being missional. But the reality is, friends, now this is the second point, the apostles' context is one of hostile opposition. It's not just that the apostles' witness is rejected, but the response of the Jews is a growing hostility. And it's intriguing and it's revealing that the hostility doesn't come about primarily because of the, I want to say, the message. The hostility comes about more because of the effect of the message. In other words, we don't want to necessarily deal with the content. Okay, you're talking about the Messiah. Okay, you're talking about these things. But there's something in here that the Jews do not like. What does Luke say? He's very, very clear about it. He says, but when the Jews saw the crowds, they were filled with what? Jealousy. What's the jealous part here? See, they could handle Paul and Barnabas talking about a Messiah but they couldn't handle the fact that God is saying to the Jews, look, I've come to you, but you have rejected the gospel. Now my light is going to the Gentiles. Wait a second, that's too much. We are God's people. We are his chosen ones. Those Gentiles, yes, they can come and they can convert and and somehow be a part of what we're doing, but we are the real ones, the objects of God's love. So friends, this was, you want to say, a a, a jealousy of exclusivity. But I wonder also if there was a jealousy from the perspective that there were so many people that were coming to hear and there was 
there was likely just this, this, this less noble kind of, of jealousy, a political jealousy, because if this is happening, it's going to change our relationship with those who are leaders. And we see in the context here that the Jews certainly had relationships with leadership. Or maybe there was a financial jealousy. I mean, it's one of the things when Jews went into different places, they were incredibly gifted with finances and business. It's one of the things that they're known for. And yet you wonder whether they're jealous of the fact that something might change as a result of the crowds and the people being influenced by this new gospel. And it's a reminder, friends, that people will do or say many things when they're offended or feel threatened. Let me just kind of give you a couple here. They might say, where do you Christians get off thinking that you're better than anyone else? Ever heard that before? And of course, they don't understand Christianity if they're making a statement like that. Because true Christians don't think that we're any better than anyone else. If anything, we realize that we're, we're just as bad as everyone else. We're saved by grace, not because we're good. We're saved by grace because we don't deserve it. Or similarly, why do you think you're so special to be the recipient of God's love, but I'm not? Well, we're not any more special, but we're thankful that God has visited us with his gospel, breathing into us new life. Or maybe to turn it around, they might say this, my God loves everyone and accepts them as they are. And our response is, well, the God we worship isn't man-made, but existed before the creation of the world, and we believe that he has the right to speak and to be heard. See, man wants to make God in his own image, right? And we're saying, you know what? Um, we're, we're listening to the God who is the creator, who has the authority to speak. But see, when people are jealous, when people are offended, they will say things that just don't, don't set right. They're really not clear about what's truly going on. So driven with a heart of jealousy, they begin their hostility against Paul and Barnabas and John Mark, and we see it escalating in three stages. We've talked about this um, a few times, just in kind of passing, highlighting some things, but here we see it really demonstrated in the text. Notice, first of all, there's verbal abuse. Verbal abuse. Look at verse 45. We're told there that they began to contradict what Paul was saying, attacking Paul's words, continuously speaking against these things uh, that Paul and Barnabas were saying about the gospel. It's kind of like, you know, you might go on Facebook or Twitter and put something up there that has kind of a gospel focus. You put it up there, and sure enough, five minutes later, someone's slapping down that, How you know, why are you putting this up there? We know that's not true, and the naysayers are there, and it may not happen to you, but it happens to me, and it happens to people I know. But people are just, they're just opposed and they want to contradict anything that's being said out there. Or we say that they're also reviling. So they're not just attacking Paul's words. Reviling is attacking Paul's character. This is the classic argument, the ad hominem tactic, which simply means this, that you don't address the subject or the content of the argument. You attack the individual and their character so you don't have to deal with the content. But this is the tactic they're using, verbal abuse. Secondly, political manipulation. In Pisidian Antioch, the Jews turned to two groups of people, we're told. The prominent women, likely wealthy Jewish proselyte, uh, wealthy proselyte women, or possibly the wives of the Jewish leaders. And then also 
leading men, likely the, the nobility. And what do they do with this group or these two groups of people? They incite them. In other words, they are provoking a strong emotional reaction against the two Jewish missionaries. They stirred up persecution against Paul, we're told, and they drove them out of their district. Now, we're not told if it moved to some kind of a physical thing yet, but certainly they are orchestrating here with the political you know, political people and the powers to, to get them out of the city. And then we go to Iconium, where we find in chapter 14, verse 2. The Jews who did not believe stirred up the Gentiles and poisoned their minds against the brothers. Again, stirring up the Gentiles, begin saying things, making accusations, and then poisoning their minds against the brothers. In other words, making accusations that aren't true, uh, you know, telling them that you know, we're, we're, you know, you're sacrificing children, things like that. Um, and I remember being in, in, in Russia years ago and, and seeking to, to, to minister there. And you know, there were commercials, and I actually saw commercials that were basically saying, don't go to a Baptist church because they will, they will steal your children from you. I'm not stealing any children from you, but it was, it was rhetoric, right? Because they don't want people to be a part of, of God's church. So we have verbal abuse, political manipulation. And friends, we've seen these two tactics in particular take place here in our country over the past couple of years. All right, just think about COVID. Anyone who challenges or asks legitimate questions about COVID practices or policies is not only ridiculed, but their character is attacked. They're silenced, they're shut down, and many have lost their jobs. Now, I'm not arguing for one side or the other. I'm just looking at the practice. Can we not just have a legitimate debate? Can we not just talk with different people's ideas? No, you can't. And the ideology then of villainizing unvaccinated people has become common practice in the language of the media. The unvaccinated have no authority, no expertise to contribute to the conversation. They're just ignorant fools because they don't know the truth. See, this is all verbal attack. It's squelching down. We experience it. Again, I'm not arguing one way or the other here. I'm just showing the point of the discussion and the, the, the language that is used out there. We certainly have heard it. We've seen it. We've probably felt it too. And then with all the other social justice issues that we've seen over the past few years, typically the issues that where we stand in opposition because of what the scriptures teach, uh, society has, has basically um, become more and more secularized, wanting to remove God out of the picture, in particular governments and buildings. And by God, I mean the 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 true Christian God, because I think our society is bending over backwards for Buddhists and Muslims. And then we have self-proclaimed smart people who promote the idea of the death of God or write books about the God delusion or the origin of species, or they're talking now about deconstructing one's faith. All these things are happening in this hostile world, aren't they? And there's more. We could talk about more. But get this. All the while, those who are in opposition shake their fist at God through their writing, through their seminars, through their teaching in universities, and so on. The word of God continues to be sown in the hearts of men and women around the world, bringing radical change to people's lives. Defeating sin and its bondage, granting forgiveness and restoration, and ushering them into the family of God 
and a local body of believers. The supposed dead God is very much alive and at work. And we need to remember that, friends. Because we get bombarded with all sorts of stuff in this hostile world. Now, the natural flow of gospel opposition, it goes from physical or verbal abuse to political manipulation to physical force. And we have that really given to us in verse 5. It says, an attempt was made by the Gentiles and Jews with their rulers to mistreat them and to stone them. Now, the intent was there. This is what they were wanting to do. This is what they were orchestrating. But the news got to the apostles and they were able to leave before any of that happened. But friends, this is the kind of stuff that happens to Christians in a hostile world. Now, my question to you is, are you ready for this? Are you saying, well, you're just kind of overstating the case? Maybe, or maybe not. Because things can change in this world really quick. And you might find yourself on the opposite side of what society is willing to tolerate. And they will justify their actions and behavior because of what they perceive you are. That's just the reality of it, friends. So we've seen the apostles, what did we say there? Um, First thing there, calling. Then we see the apostles' content, the context, hostile opposition. Now we want to notice, third, the apostles' conviction. And we're driving now to to this core reality. So how is it that the apostles can persevere in the face of such opposition? What is it that gives them fuel to press on with the gospel? I'm glad you asked because this is the question that's at the heart of this text and we'll answer this question. And the first thing we can, we can say, and we mentioned it earlier, is that these apostles are pressing on in obedience to the mission Christ lays out for them in Acts 1.8, where they're told to be witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, and Samaria, and to the end of the earth. But what is driving even that obedience? See, friends, we can be obedient, and it's just performance. And what I want to show you this morning is that our obedience can't just be performance-based. And what we have modeled here is that there's something theological that the apostles are holding on to that is driving even their obedience. So look, if you would, please, at chapter 13 and verse 47. For so the Lord has commanded us, saying, I have made you a light for the Gentiles, that you may bring salvation to the end of the earth. There's some similar language, isn't there? to what Jesus even said. I've made you a light, not just for the Jews, but for the Gentiles, so that I might bring salvation to the end of the earth. Paul is quoting Isaiah chapter 49 and verse 6. And so let's turn back to Isaiah's prophecy and trace this light motif or this theme to gain a fuller understanding of what it is that Paul is saying. So what we've looked at so far is just kind of explaining the context. Now we're getting into the meat of what is actually going on. And I want you to notice, first of all, Isaiah's light. Isaiah's light. 
That's Isaiah chapter 9 and verse 2. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in the land of the deep darkness, on them has light shone. So we have here a promise. There's people in darkness, but there's going to be light. It's going to be a great light. Well, who is this light in this passage? Well, ultimately, it's the coming of the Messiah. And we find the connection in verse 6. It's not up on the screen. For unto us a child is born, we're told. To us a son is given, and the government shall be on his shoulders, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. He is the light. And then in Isaiah chapter 42, verse 1, we're told here about my servant, the servant of the Lord. Behold, my servant whom I uphold, my chosen in whom my soul delights, I have put my spirit on upon him. He will bring forth justice to who? To the nations, not just to Israel, but to the nations. And then we continue on and we look at chapter 42 of Isaiah and verses 6 and 7. Here we're told, God speaking, I will give you as a covenant for the people a light for who? The nations. To open the eyes that are blind, to bring out the prisoners from the dungeon, from the prison, those who sit in darkness. So the servant figure is going to bring light, not just to the Jewish nations, but across the world. So that those who are blind can see, those who are prisoners can be set free. This sounds more like New Testament stuff, doesn't it? Now at Isaiah chapter 49, verse 6, which is the passage which Paul is quoting here. This is the second uh, of the servant songs in Isaiah. He says, it is too light a thing. That word light there, by the way, has to do with weight, okay? It's too light a thing that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob and to bring back the preserved of Israel. In other words, it's insufficient. I will make you as a light for the nations that my salvation may reach to the end of the earth. And so when God plans, he plans big. He's not just planning for Israel. He's planning for the end of the earth. He's planning for the whole world. He made it. And so he's granting his salvation ultimately to them. So uh, 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 he plans for his servant to rescue his people and then to bring light to the nation. So who then is this servant? Everything on Isaiah's prophecy is building up to Isaiah 53. And this is the last of the servant songs. And he's speaking about the servant here. And notice here that it is an an individual. You might say that the servant of the Lord was Israel, generally speaking, to begin with. Maybe a smaller group, but it whittles down as he keeps talking, specifically to be an individual. Notice Isaiah chapter 53, verses 5 and 6. We know this very well. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds, we are healed. 
All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. So forgiveness of sins comes through this servant. He will bear the full brunt of God's judgment for our human failure and rebellion so that we may never fear God's judgment again. We're forgiven, and we trust the Savior to be a light to the nations. My friends, the image of light in the Bible, without it, there's only death. There's only darkness. There's no truth from God. There's no knowledge from God. We are not enlightened by God. In fact, we would be endarkened. So the servant who would bring forgiveness of sin and would bring about friendship with God and knowledge of God was going to do that for all nations. Friends, see, this is what's driving the Apostle Paul and Barnabas to carry out their ministry beyond the Jews. It's not just the commandment by Jesus or the commissioning of Jesus. It's also the theology of what is found in the Old Testament that is now bursting forth into their very context. That's Isaiah's light. Now let's talk about Simeon's light. Luke chapter 2, Simeon's light. Luke chapter 2, verse 29, Jesus is now being brought to the temple um, the eighth day. And this is what Simeon does. He grabs the baby, somewhat like Mufasa does with with little um, Simba in The Lion King. Picks him up, holds him up, and just notice what he says. Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace. That means to die. According to your word, for my eyes have seen your what? Your salvation, that you have prepared in the presence of who? All peoples, a light for revelation to the Gentiles and for glory to your people, Israel. You see what's going on here? Now I can die. I've seen your salvation, not just to the Jews, but also to the Gentiles. It was already there. Simeon understood it. He understood God's word. He understood God's heart revealed in his word that God wasn't just about the Jews. He also had a heart for the Gentiles. And we see that in other places in the Old Testament too. But you know, Israel forgot that on a practical level. That's why they're rebelling here. That's why they're responding with jealousy. Simeon's light, Isaiah's light, now John's light. John opens up his gospel he talks about in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was God, and the Word was with God. And then in verse 9, here's what we find. The true light, identifying Jesus, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, Israel, and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, all right, his people didn't receive him, but to all who did receive him. Who would that be? Well, it's going to be some Jews, but it's also going to be Gentiles, right? Who believed in his name, he gave the right to be children of God. This is important. This is the light. The light came to the world. Some are going to receive him. Some are going to reject him. But the Jews are going to reject him. Not all of them, but the Jews as 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 a people group. But then the Gentiles are also going to receive him. And then Jesus says in chapter 8, verse 12, 
I am the light of the world. I mean, even Jesus says this about himself. He identifies himself as this particular light. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life, as Albert brought to our attention at the beginning of our time this morning. So we have Isaiah's light, Simeon's light, John's light, and then we have Luke's light, which is where we have recorded in our text. You see what the Apostle Paul is saying to the Jews. Verse 46, And Paul and Barnabas spoke boldly, saying, It was necessary that the word of God be spoken to you, uh, spoken first to you. Since you thrust it aside and judge yourselves unworthy of eternal life, behold, we're turning to the Gentiles. Let's just pause there. What's happening? The gospel is coming to the Jews. The Jews ultimately are rejecting it. And ultimately what they're saying is this, we don't need it. And why would they say we don't need it? Because we're descendants of Abraham. We don't need this gospel. We don't need what's being taught here in the synagogues by these people. We're, we're Israel. We're Jews. And so what happens? With the promise of God and his fulfillment, Paul and Barnabas are taking the light of the gospel to the Gentiles as part of God's unfolding plan to bring salvation to the end of the earth. That's what it's saying here in verse 47. For so, based on what you're doing here, your rejection, you're judging yourself unworthy of it, for so the Lord has commanded us, saying, I have made you a light for the Gentiles that you may bring salvation to the end of the earth. You see how this is driving what they're doing? It's not just obedience. There's theological truth that's rooted in the Old Testament. This is the heart of God being fleshed out. So that's the light. Secondly, though, there's there's another aspect here that's worth us noting, and that is, I'm calling it shaking the dust. Look at verse 51. And this is ultimately after they've continued to reject them, and they're forcing them out of the area. Notice it says, but they shook off the dust from their feet against them and went to Iconium, and the disciples were filled with joy and with the Holy Spirit. This is why, even after a clear warning and explanation from the Scriptures, which we've just looked at, Paul and Barnabas and John Mark symbolically shake the dust off of their feet. Now, friends, there's, there's irony here in the symbolism. Why? Because this was actually the practice of the Jews when they would journey into Gentile territory and they came back into their Israelite Jewish territory, they would shake the dust off of their feet symbolically to say, we don't want any contamination, uncleanness from the Gentiles to come into our land. And so what Paul is doing here is the same thing, but basically saying this this word and this expression uh, ended up meaning ultimately that we have come and we've presented the gospel to you. We shared the light of the gospel with you, but you are unwilling to believe. You are responsible for the gospel preached. We've done our part. If you're rejecting it, that is on you, shaking the dust off. Shaking the dust off. Now, friends, this is, this is kind of hard stuff, isn't it? 
And I know we, we, we continually want to be praying for people that we know that don't know Christ. And we can go to our graves praying for that same person because we want them to know the Lord. But ultimately, friends, you cannot coerce anyone. And quite frankly, you need to settle that with the Lord and say there's, there's a great opportunity for gospel proclamation. But there's a need now for what I'm calling gospel toughness that says, you know what? I, I, I've, I've done my part. I've shared the gospel with you. You are responsible. And you know, you may, you may be sitting here today and you come week after week and you hear the gospel and, and, you know, other people might think, hey, you know, this person's a born again believer, but in your heart, you're not. Maybe your parents bring you here. Maybe you come because your spouse comes, but in your heart, you're not. I I can be faithful to proclaim the truth. People in this church can be faithful to share the gospel with you. But you are responsible for your response to the gospel. And I can rightly, sadly, shake the dust off of my feet and say, you know what, Lord, I've done what I needed to do. I've been responsible. The responsibility, the accountability now is on their shoulders. Now, we don't want that necessarily to turn into a coldness. But there's a reality, friends, that you cannot make someone follow Christ. We need a gospel toughness. Now, having worked through all this, I want to bring things to a close. Three concluding thoughts related to our text coming out of our text. First of all, the importance of you receiving the light. Jesus is the light. He says it himself. We're told by the apostle Peter, he tells us that God calls us out of darkness into his marvelous light. Jesus enters into the darkness. He is the light. He draws people to himself. He comes offering salvation by virtue of what he's done on the cross, but we must receive that light. Yes, God is sovereign in salvation, but his sovereignty doesn't undermine my responsibility in response. You still have to do something. You still have to repent. You still have to listen. You have to receive it. Are you a recipient of the light of the gospel? And I I want to plead with you. Not just to assume that you're a follower of Christ, simply because you're present here today. But to allow the word of God to penetrate your heart and humble yourself before him. See yourself as an unworthy sinner, deserving of an eternity in in, in hell. But knowing that Jesus Christ died on the cross for your sins and will grant you forgiveness if you will believe Have you embraced him as your Lord and Savior? Have you received this light of the gospel for yourself? Has it resulted in change? Is there there fruit that has been born? Receive the light. My, my, My plea with you is please don't be here and walk out of here without dealing with that question. Secondly, we're called to walk in the light. The Apostle Paul in Ephesians chapter 5 in verses 7 through 8, talk, after having talked about the world and, and, and the sinfulness of the world, he says this, Therefore, do not become partners with them, the people of the world who, who practice these evil things. For at one time you were darkness, but now 
You are the light in the world. Walk as children of light. So it's one thing to receive the light. Now we are to walk as light, in that light, out of that light. Allow the Lord Jesus Christ through his word to expose you to truth, to expose your heart and your sinfulness so that you can be on this path of of, of progressive sanctification, be more and more like Jesus Christ. Stop living in the darkness of the world and start living in the light of the things that God has for you, the good things that are there for you. And third, not only receive the light, walk in the light, but then also shine the light. Matthew chapter 5, and verse 14, the following, Jesus says, you are the light of the world. You are. This morning I walked in, and actually it was yesterday, we had a meeting last night, and our brother in the back there, Alex Vakulin, and his wife, they just got back from, from Hawaii. And Alex is, is glowing, if you notice that. Uh, some people might call it a tan, But his response to me was, I'm like Moses, reflecting the glory of God. But there's a sense in which, friends, that we are are like Christ. We are mirrors. We're reflecting this light. We are to share this light. And what what does this passage continue to tell us? Jesus says, a city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house in the same way. Let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. So just as God sent Christ into the world to bring life and light to humanity, so Christ sends his disciples into the four corners of the world to share the light as lights themselves because we are to let our light shine. See, God calls us to live as light to the world, pointing to Jesus, the ultimate light, who is himself salvation. Let me finish just by turning to one passage of Scripture, and that would be the book of Revelation in verse 20, or chapter 22. And again, I just want, you, want to, there's probably more to say about this whole motif, but it's a wonderful way to finish things up and even to prepare for the Lord's Supper this morning. Revelation 22, and this is at the end. This is what happens when we are uh, present with the Lord in heaven. I'll begin reading at verse 1 and just notice how, this, how, how, how we end up in verse 5. Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, bright as crystal flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb through the middle of the street of the city, Also on either side of the river, the tree of life, with its 12 kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit each month. The leaves of the tree uh, were for healing of the nations. No longer will there be anything accursed, but the, the throne of God and the Lamb will be in it, and his servants will worship him. They will see his face, and his name will be on their foreheads, and night will be no more. They will need no light of lamp or sun for the Lord will be their light, and they will reign forever and ever. You see, when we come to the Lord's table, I know we're, we're, we're coming to remember what Jesus Christ has done on the cross, and we should, and it's right, and it's good. But the same one who died on the cross is also the light 
who is worthy of our worship. This is the God you and I serve. And he is the one who's driving us to live our lives missionally every day in every context. We are the light. Not because of anything we have done. We're the light because he has, as the light, has shone on us. He's drawn us to himself and he's, he's breathed life into our souls and we become his children. And as his children, we reflect not only his character, but we reflect his gospel wherever we go. Lord, help us today to consider, Lord, just these, these truths. It's, yes, we are to, to be faithful to proclaim the word of God. And the apostles did that, Lord. And we, we should look for opportunities to open our mouths and to engage with people. Lord, as we do that, we know, just like the apostles, we're going to face opposition. People that don't care or people that, that care more about their, their situation that they're going to turn on us. Those things might happen, Lord. But ultimately, we're not driven by, I want to say, the 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 effects of things, that we're driven by a theology, a deep-rooted theology that sees you as our wonderful Lord and Savior that is that is come and that is still to come, and Lord, who's come to give us life and to give us uh, this light of understanding and awareness. Lord, may we not just seek to, to wander in this world, but Lord, may we live our lives, Lord, in the light, as your light, because we are worshiping the one true light. Help us, Lord, to be faithful to that, we ask in your name. Amen.